morning, guys. Why don't you all grab a seat? Good to see you. Good to see you. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to get into uh, the Bible. So if you guys wouldn't mind opening your Bibles to the book of Mark, book of Mark chapter 7. We've been going through a series in the Gospel of Mark and uh, slowly but surely making our way through this great book. Today we're going to be taking a look at a passage that in a lot of ways is, is very challenging for us. I'll explain why in a moment. What I want to do is I want to pray first, and then we're going to read the passage, and you'll probably begin to see a little bit why it presents some challenges, and then uh, we'll begin to try to unpack it and see what God has to speak to us regarding the passage we'll be taking a look at here today. So let's pray. We'll read. Jump in. Father, right now we just ask you that you would help us open our eyes, and we ask God for more than just a Bible study. We pray for more than just simply educating our minds. We pray, God, that we would be impacted and transformed by what your word has to speak to us. So we give you this morning, we give you this time, and we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 7, verse 1, it says, And when the Pharisees gathered to him, they, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now what you're going to see in verse 3 on down to a handful of other verses down about verse 4, 3 and 4 uh, is in most of your, most of your Bibles is a little parenthesis or parenthe, uh, parenthetical statement. And the reason why Mark does this is most scholars believe that Mark was writing to a bunch of uh, non-Jews. And so these people would have been completely unfamiliar with any type of Jewish ritual cleansing. And so Mark is kind enough to people like us to actually tell us a little bit about why these guys are so up in arms as to... Um, people not washing their hands. It's not like what you think. Some of you are like, I don't get it. What's wrong with like not washing your hands? Because right after you shook someone's hand, you whipped out your Perel because that's how much of a germaphobe you are. And so you're like, I don't get it. That's really cool. Like washing hands, I'm into that type of stuff. But there is a reason behind the reason that Jesus will address. So um, verse 3, it says this, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came to the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. For there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and of pots, copper vessels, and dining couches. He says, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? And then he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? It's written, This people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts far from me. In vain... They worship me. They teach his doctrines, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God, and you hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So we have kind of an interesting passage here, and like I said already, in some ways it's kind of complex, it's kind of dense. What Mark does is he pauses from the typical storyline or narrative that he's been already describing to us, because up until this point, almost every story that we read about Jesus is about Jesus healing somebody, Jesus feeding 5,000 people, Jesus calming a storm by simply telling the tornado to stop, and it stops. And so we've seen a lot of miraculous events transpire and take place through the life and through the ministry of Jesus. And so now, what Mark does is he kind of pauses a little bit, and we see Jesus literally go, you know, ultimate fighting in the octagon with a bunch of religious leaders. He's like, 
we're going to go head-to-head, toe-to-toe, face-to-face, and it's going to be over a theological battle. So Jesus is now going to get into a theological skirmish with the religious leaders about a tradition that the religious leaders are very upset and very frustrated with. And this is oftentimes what happens. Religious people tend to become very easily grumpy and very easily upset because what typically happens is there's a tendency for religious people, and I'll try to define in a moment uh, and broaden this concept of religion in a second, but religious people tend to look at certain standards, certain actions, certain uh, ways and codes of ethics and say, if you do this thing, if you live according to this way, if you act out according to this particular tradition, then you will be accepted. If you don't, however, you won't be accepted. Now, let me say this. There are religious traditions and there are secular traditions. This is not just exclusively found within the church, because some of you might look at this and think, ah, I came from a church that was very religiously traditional. However, there are secular traditions as well that are equally as oppressive and equally as full of condemnation. Let's start with some of the religious traditions. I posted on my Facebook yesterday, I asked people to help me out with my sermon today, and some of you were kind enough to help me out, and I was asking, what are some of the religious traditions that some of you have seen, observed, had foisted upon you, level upon you, that have become oppressive or destructive? Some of the responses were like, women were not allowed to wear jeans to church. Um, they could wear them outside of church, but in church you had to wear a dress. Um, I, I think that may have had to do something with an Old Testament passage that said that women aren't supposed to dress like dudes, guys aren't supposed to dress like girls. But as long as you're out of church, I guess women can dress like dudes, but at least according to that tradition. So in other words, if you walk into church and you have jeans on, you won't be accepted. People will look at you with some sort of level of suspicion. Another gal posted that she has tats, a lot of tats, a lot of tattoos. And the church, the tradition that she had gone into uh, was very frustrated with her because she had these tattoos. I've talked with her. She's a friend of mine. I've heard her story. And the reality is, is that it's kind of an idea that says you shouldn't mess up your body. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's funny to me how some religious people can be like, don't mess up your body, i.e. don't get tats, and yet they're fat because they eat a lot of hamburgers. And they're very overweight. But it's not okay to have tattoos on your arm, but it is okay to have a very large belly. I don't get it. But that's ultimately what oftentimes happens with various crazy religious traditions is we tend to sort of isolate, separate, remove certain people. Now, there are secular traditions as well that are equally as full of condemnation. So some of them, for example, might be um, recycling, right? Ten years ago, 12 years ago, it was not big a deal. Like, if you threw away trash cans or threw away, you know, aluminum cans on the ground, like, eh, people might look at you and not be too happy. But if you do that today... People get angry. So if you drive downtown in a big SUV and you're smoking and you throw your cigarette butt out in front of, you know, say, New Frontiers or out in front of another, like, <laughs> vegan-style restaurant, which I won't mention, then they might actually take great offense at you, cuss you out, and become very frustrated with you and isolate themselves from you because you have broken the tradition. You are not accepted. You are not acceptable, all right? We also see kind of another one, for example, might be, like, being politically correct, right? 20 years ago. Um, you know, I mean, I, I like to watch Leave it to Beaver with my kids. Like, that's, I, I'm into that. And it's kind of funny because the persona in the picture, you know, back in the 50s or whenever that was, 
was that a woman had a particular place in society and culture, and she wore an apron, and the dad was, you know, Ward Cleaver and fit every stereotype that Ward Cleaver fits. And, but in today's culture, if you even suggest that or hint that, it's like you're a bigot, you're evil, you should die and go to hell. And it's, it's just bad to even think that, and it's not politically correct to even think or talk or act in those particular ways. So if you act like that, think like that, or borrow from a culture that was 50 years ago, that's oppressive, that's evil, that's wicked, and we get a chance to throw darts at you. But the way this even kind of works, even in social classes, even within our culture, and I think even perhaps even within our church, there's a tendency, even within religious systems, to have a particular idea as to what is religiously acceptable before God. So another person written on my Facebook page that... Women, for example, I guess there's a lot of rules for women. They weren't allowed to wear makeup and had to wear their hair in a bun. Like, I, like that's holy. Like, Jesus actually really likes buns better than long hair. I don't know. But the point of the matter is, is that we can mock that and laugh at it because I think it's funny. But at the end of the day, there are people that would be like, well, we're anti-tradition. And so we're like the opposite. And so what, you know, modern people, and a lot of times I think maybe even our church, is like, we're anti-tradition. I'm going to be a chain smoker and get tattooed. And the problem is, it, or, you know, wear a beanie while I'm leading worship or tight jeans or, you know, faux hawks or whatever. And the point of the matter is I think there's a tendency to kind of have this sort of anti-traditional mentality that looks at people that wear khakis and a Hawaiian shirt and be like, oh, that's lame. <laughs> well, you're judging somebody else by your tradition, which might be all tatted up, chain smoker, and you're looking at the guy who wears a Hawaiian shirt and you're judging him. It's okay, because the dude with the Hawaiian shirt and khaki jeans is judging you, right? And you're like, feel justified to do that. But the point of the matter is this. Those are traditions. Those are traditions that we hold to tenaciously to somehow think, this is a way that I will be accepted. This way I will be acceptable. May not, maybe not so much by God. I don't think anybody looks at that and thinks, God really likes Hawaiian shirts better than a sleeve, right? Nobody thinks that. But in certain social settings, that's how the way we act. So the point that I would make is that what makes this passage very unique, in some ways complex, is because we're reading about subject matter that in a lot of ways is very distant from us. It has to do with religious tradition, and not just any religious tradition, but first century religious tradition. For us, we're 2,000 years and several continents removed from anything that happens here. So one of the things we need to first be able to try to understand is the context of what was happening first century so that we can better try to address the issue. Secondly, we need to be careful that we don't read our ideas and concepts into tradition and superimpose that over what Jesus is really trying to say. Does that make sense? So even though it does require a little bit more work than really trying to understand, like, what does it mean to feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish and so on and so forth, we're going to have to think a little bit more because this is a little bit more complex, a little bit more dense due to these cultural, traditional sentiments that were there in a lot of ways are unfamiliar to us. I think there's a way that we can do this and accomplish this and hopefully let God speak to us through this passage. So with that being said, I think there's at least two things that Mark wants us to see that are actual themes in the dialogue that's going on between Jesus and the religious leaders. And I think they basically can break down into two questions. The first question, I think, is this. Who speaks for God? I think it's the question. Who actually speaks for God? So this is a question of authority. Who actually is or who has authority? The religious traditionalists, they would have said, well, our fathers. Our fathers have the authority. They hear the Bible. They interpret the Bible. We submit to their interpretation of the Bible. Jesus would say, 
I don't accept their interpretation. What Jesus is actually saying is an issue of authority. He's questioning their right to have authority over the scriptures by doing it in a very interesting way. The second thing we'll take a look at is really who honors God rightly. So the question of this has to do with the question of identity and approval. Who does God actually approve of and who actually can be identified with God? Religious leaders would have been like, oh, those who follow the traditions of the fathers, those are the ones that have the right identity as God's beloved people. Jesus would say, no. That's not true. He's going to push back. He's going to fight. He's going to resist their attempts to straightjacket their understanding of tradition over Jesus. And he's going to say, no. That's not what makes people righteous or accepted by God. It's not your tradition. It's not your religious tradition. It's not your materialistic position. It's not your secular tradition. It's not your ideas or your views on recycling or whether or not you have tats or don't have tats or wear Hawaiian shirts or what church you go to or what theological understandings you have about God. That's not what deems you acceptable by God. There's something bigger, something greater that has created that. Those are the two things I think that are going on here in the text. So we're going to try to tackle these. First, who speaks for God? Who speaks for God? Again, like I said, this is a big issue. They're trying to figure out. It's a question of authority. And one of the things I think that really comes very clearly in the passage here is that Jesus has a very, very high view of the Bible. It comes very clear within this passage. Because Jesus is not, he's arguing with them from the Bible. All right? Let me just pause real quick and say this. If your view of Jesus is always like sort of this quasi-hippie, quasi-like, nice guy person, and you never see Jesus as getting actually angry, you need, a, you need a bigger picture of Jesus. And we've been trying to say this all along. If what you do when you read your Bible is to try to sort of fabricate, create, isolate, identify a Jesus that fits your particular palette, your liking, at the end of the day, you're God. You're choosing what God you'll submit to. At the end of the day, you have the highest authority. You are God. And let me just say this. Your attempts to create your own God will fail you in the end because a Jesus that you create cannot save you. A Jesus that you make cannot help you. When life is hard, when things are difficult, when you're going through difficult times and you need help, that Jesus that you created cannot save, help, comfort you. So you need to be able to have an understanding. You need to let Jesus speak for himself. You need to let Jesus give to us a picture as to who he truly is and who he says about himself and who he reveals himself to be. And so in this passage, we see a Jesus that's actually quite frustrated, quite, quite angry with the religious traditional values of the day. And he's, let me just say this as well. He's not saying all tradition is bad. He's not pushing it all aside. He's just saying that especially when tradition and interpretation of certain biblical passages actually rises in elevation over the level of the authority of the Bible itself, that's when it becomes wrong. And so here's what he does. We see Jesus very clearly basically saying that he has this high view of the Bible. He loves the Bible. He loves God's word. Listen to how he argues and describes and fights with these guys. He's always quoting the Bible. There's at least three different ways throughout Jesus' life that we see Jesus have this very high view of the Bible. For example, his intellect, his actions, and his affections. In other words, 
you can look at this way. The mind, the will, and the heart. Listen to how all of these sort of have unfolded throughout Jesus' life. First of all, take a look at the intellect or his mind. Whenever Jesus was challenged or confronted on some particular moral issue by the religious leaders, or by anybody for that matter, what did Jesus say? Every time Jesus was confronted on a moral issue, Jesus always comes back to him and says, it's written. In other words, God said something. Because God said it, it settles it. It's done. This is not even an argument anymore. It's as if that's what Jesus said. You want to deal on an intellectual level, God said something. And whatever God said is what the authority is all about. So you're looking for answers from an, for an intellectual argument. Jesus would say, it is written. Here's what God has said. So Jesus uses the Bible as a means to establish his intellectual understanding and perceptions of all things. The second thing that we see is his action or his will. What moved Jesus? What caused Jesus to do the things that he did? That he did? Take, for example, when Jesus was in the garden. I think it's around Matthew 26, something like that. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's about to be arrested, uh, Peter, the apostle, whips out his sword, and he's about ready to fight off all of these religious leaders that are about to apprehend, arrest Jesus, and imprison him. And Jesus basically tells Peter, put away your sword. Don't you know, Peter, it is written that the Messiah, that he is to be arrested, he is to be apprehended, he, be, he is to be brought into the midst of all of these things. So here's what Jesus is saying. My life, my very will, my actions are guided, are under the authority of, led by God and what God has to say. The third thing is we see even with regard to his affections or his heart. This is absolutely amazing to me because throughout Jesus' life, he was tempted, he was tried, he was belittled. He was tortured. He had gone through some of the most horrendous things you can imagine. For example, when Jesus was in the wilderness and he was tempted, and the devil was tempting him, Jesus does what? He says, it is written. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. It is written. The Lord will provide. It is written. God will take care of his servant. He's, he's always referring back to God's word. Jesus is being tortured. Jesus is on the cross. He's bleeding. He's sweating. Perhaps just, just all sorts of means of suffering and destruction happening to his body. When you or I, whenever we find ourselves in the most devastating, most difficult moments of our life, let's say your life is imminently threatened. Whatever comes out of your mouth in that moment, you don't think about it, do you? Like if, if you're watching a movie at home and all of a sudden you hear the front door opening up, whatever you're going to say is what's, what's there. It's in your heart. If you're like curse or you say something pretty nasty and it's because usually that's probably what's inside your heart. But when Jesus was at the most difficult moment of his life, being tortured, being tested, he speaks God's word. He cries out. He speaks God's word. And the great preacher uh, Spurgeon once said this. When Jesus was tempted, when Jesus was tried, you can stab Jesus with a sword. You can pierce his hands and his feet. And what happens is Jesus actually bleeds Bible. Jesus just spoke Bible. It was part of his lifestyle. It was part of who he was. I'll give you an example of this in the practical. Modern day. A good friend of mine, his name's Britt Merrick. He pastors a church down uh, in Carpentry. It's called Reality. And his daughter, just a couple weeks ago, was diagnosed for the third time with cancer. She's seven years old now. And so they had just taken her in last week for another operation to remove a golf ball-sized tumor. 
And they don't know if it's cancerous or not. Doctor basically said if it's not cancerous, it'll be an absolute miracle. So they're anticipating, expecting it to be cancer, and they're not sure, obviously, at this point, where she's going to go. She has already defeated massive odds up to this point. She was given, basically, a very, very slim chance to survive. She's survived, so we don't know exactly what's going to happen. The story is still ongoing. But this past week, when Britt had his daughter in operation, just kind of checking his Facebook to see if there's any updates, every single post during that time, hours prior to the operation, hours after the operation, was nothing but Scripture. It wasn't because Brit's trying to be all like, you know, I'm a pastor. I gotta like maintain a level, like making people think I'm trusting God. I know Brit. That's his heart. He's bleeding, but he's bleeding scripture. Because that's what he's holding on to in his mind. He knows that's the only thing that will sustain him. That's the only thing that will uphold him. It's the only thing that will bring equilibrium to his very soul is scripture. That's what's there. It's in there. And you prick him, you stab him, and he bleeds scripture. That's just like Jesus. That's what gives us in our lives equilibrium. That's what gives us poise when we go through difficult, crushing, oppressive moments in our life. So I'm really trying to say is this. The point of the matter is when we're talking about the issue of authority, Jesus looks at the word of God and says it is high authority. He has great respect and honor for the authority of the Bible. So let me say this. There's a lot of people in our culture today that would look at Jesus and say, I like Jesus. He's a good guy. I can identify with him. He's really nice. And that's a God that I can worship. But the Bible, not too into the Bible. It feels archaic. It feels outdated. It feels like it says a lot of things I just don't agree with. But here's really what I want you to hear, and you need to hear this very carefully. You cannot follow Jesus and reject the very thing of which his entire life is based. It's like someone coming to me being like, Brian, I really like you, but I very much so dislike your wife and your kids. You're not my friend. We are enemies now. Watch your back. Because I love my wife and I love my kids, and if you hate them, you're actually inadvertently saying you hate me. My entire life is my family. It's my wife. It's my two daughters. I love them with all my heart. You cannot claim to follow Jesus, to love Jesus, to honor Jesus, to respect Jesus, and dislike, question, hate, draw skepticism from the very thing that he says my entire life, my mind, my intellect, my thought, my emotions, my affections are in God's word. Don't like that. But I like Jesus. You are being inconsistent. Just own that. Be honest. Jesus' whole life was built on God's word. Everything. He bled the Bible. The thing that I want us to understand with regard to this is that really at the end of the day, unless we are willing to conform our hearts and our lives to God's word, all of it, the way that we think, the way that we feel, our affections, what we love, then really at the end of the day, what ends up happening, unless we do this the way Jesus does this, we really can't be his follower. Because what ends up happening is we take the Bible and we piece it apart. We say, I like this verse because this verse gives me a good fuzzy feeling, just like Jesus gives me a warm fuzzy feeling. But these 
host of verses, these books in the Bible, these portions in the Bible, I very much so dislike. You don't understand Jesus. You just reveal your ignorance. And my advice, make sure that you understand Jesus. Because again, if all you're simply doing is fabricating or creating your own designer Jesus, that Jesus cannot rescue you, he cannot save you, because he's a fake God, he's a make-believe God. He's a God that you created because you're God. You think you're God, and you cannot save yourself. You're not big enough to do that. You're not capable enough to do that. So the second thing that we see as well, not only does Jesus have a high view of the Bible, but secondly, we also see that really Jesus is trying to say that the Bible itself actually points entirely to him. He is the authority because he is its author. So that's why Jesus can challenge them and question their understanding, interpretations of the scripture and how they're misusing it and abusing it. The second thing I want you to notice is, first of all, not only an issue of, or the question of authority, but the second thing has to do with the question of identity and approval. And again, this really has to do with the question of who honors God rightly. So again, the religious leaders, they come up to Jesus and his apostles, and they see that they're not washing their hands properly. Now, again, I've got to give you a little bit of a context here, because like I said, we can read this from 21st century and think, well, isn't there, what, what's wrong with uh, making sure your hands are washed before eating a meal? That seems legit, right? But that's not at all what it's about. It's not about personal cleanliness. It's about who is accepted before God. It's about a spiritual ceremonial washing, um, proving, evidencing, uh, revealing who actually belongs to God. So those who live according to this particular tradition are identifying the fact that we are God's truly beloved people. Those who don't, those who challenge, those who bucket, those who question it, are actually not God's truly identified and loved, cared for people. So therefore... That's one of the reasons why the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him this question. Now, I find this interesting because they ask the question, how come your disciples aren't washing their hands? It's kind of a funny thing because there's questions. Let me just put it this way. There are two types of questions. There are questions that people can legitimately ask where they're genuinely looking for an answer. This is somebody that comes and like, listen, I don't know much about Jesus. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about Jesus? Is he God? If he is God, how, how, how is he revealed as God? If he died and rose again from the dead. How did he actually do that? So those are legitimate questions coming from legitimate hearts that really truly want to understand truth. The flip side of it is that there are also questions that people ask which are snarky. They're not really looking for answers. They're just, they're skeptics. They're cynics. They're trying to find some sort of way to catch somebody. That's what these people do. They're Pharisees. They're prideful. They're arrogant. They see themselves as the authority, and they're trying to bring Jesus under their authority. So they're coming to Jesus with these questions. Not honestly seeking truth, not honestly looking for light, but they want to bring Jesus under submission under them. Some of you need to realize some of the questions you're asking are totally legit. There are no illegitimate questions to honest truth seekers, people that are truly trying to figure things out. But there are those that just want to ask questions. And the reality is, no matter what answer you're given, even if it is literally right on point, you'll, re you'll reject it just like these people did with Jesus. Because it's not the fact that you're asking a question, it's the heart from which you are asking the question. So they come to Jesus asking this question. How come your disciples are not washing their hands? Now, let's step back a little bit. The Bible, we need to understand something about it, that throughout the history of the people of Israel, they were a very oral-speaking, uh, oral tradition community, meaning not everybody had Bibles. Like in our culture, we all look at it and we think we all have Bibles, and some of you have several Bibles at home. And the reality is back then, people didn't have Bibles. The only people that had Bibles perhaps would have been a rabbi or a teacher. 
or, or a synagogue. And so what you would do is one of the reasons why going to synagogue on Sabbath was very important because you would go to hear the Bible because you didn't have a Bible to read yourself. They were very expensive to make, and they took a very long time, upwards of three years, to actually create. And you would have one person called a scribe that would write these things out. Now, what you need to understand is that having the Bible was essential, was important. The entire life of the Jewish community was centered around the Torah. Now, that being said, you have to understand that there were a lot of things written in the Bible and that there were a lot of ways in which uh, verses in the Bible people were trying to interpret or understand. I'll give you one of the examples because Mark actually tells us there's a lot of examples that we can give. We're just going to give you this one that Jesus points out here. So I'll give you one example. The Jews had what was called Sabbath laws. Now, God just simply said in the Bible, keep the Sabbath holy. Holy means separated. So what does that mean to actually keep a day or Sabbath holy? Sabbath was typically on a Saturday. It started sundown on Friday night and ended sun, sundown on Saturday night. So an entire 24-hour period, they would worship. They would remember, keep the Sabbath holy. Now, what had happened was in years following, there were religious leaders that came along and says, well, we want to make sure that you guys keep the Sabbath separate and holy. So there are people that were asking, well, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath holy? Well, some would begin to say, and the moment you answer that question, if you say, well, I think it's go to church, you're, you are actually right now beginning to bring about an interpretation, right? So anytime someone asks you something, you're like, what do you think about Jesus? And you're like, I think Jesus was kind of a hippie. Like, you just interpreted the Bible. Now, you've got to ask yourself, on what basis did you give your answer? Like, I think Jesus was just a teacher, and that's it. Okay, great. Now, what authority are you speaking on? And this is the issue. So the religious leaders would come along, and they would say, God says keep the Sabbath holy. But there were other religious leaders that would come along, and they would say, here's what it means to keep the Sabbath holy. So there would be those, in terms of different laws, and again, other places in the New Testament actually address this particular issue. But on the Sabbath, they would say, in order to keep the Sabbath holy, you're not allowed to uh, work. Okay, well, what does it mean to constitute, what, what, what constitutes work? So this, this actually matters because in some households, you're trying to figure out, okay, is getting up in the morning and making scrambled eggs, is that, is that work? Is like, that, is that constitute work? What about like milking the cow? Is, is, is this work? Like half an hour, it's like, that's, is that work? Does that constitute work? Um, an, another legitimate, uh, legitimate one was when the religious leaders saw the disciples walking through a field, they took grain in their hand, and they would kind of go like this. And what they were doing is they were separating the wheat, little wheat berries, from the chaff. And the religious leaders are like, they had a law. There's a tradition that says doing this constitutes work. You're separating wheat from chaff. That is, in essence, grinding and milling. And the law says, or our interpretations of the law says, you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. You keep it holy. So you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do this because that somehow interferes with your ability to keep the Sabbath holy. And we can look at that and laugh and think it's kind of silly because it is. And the point that I would make is this, is that when these religious leaders would come along, they would say, you have to live according to all these rules and regulations. So what by nature would end up taking place is when sundown hits, you spend all this time working up to sundown, a couple hours before sundown, and then after sundown, going over your rule book, flipping all the charts, trying to figure out what do I need to do to get done before the sun sets down. And what you're doing is you're filled with stress and anxiety to rest. 
So are you really resting on the Sabbath? No, because you're full of anxiety, freaking out, thinking, am I violating something and making God mad? So you're not resting on the day of rest. You're not Sabbathing on the day of Sabbath. You're freaking out on the day of Sabbath because someone came along with a big hat and a religious title next to their name and says, these are all the rules you must abide by, otherwise God will be mad at you. And Jesus is like, you don't get it. You guys are adding all these rules upon the rules upon the rules, and you don't get the main purpose of the Bible. It's to bring you into relationship with God by pointing you to the ultimate relationship that God has established through the Son. In other words, what I think Jesus is really trying to say is that the question of identity and approval, who are those that are truly approved and identified as God's people? Is it those that don't do this? Is it those that don't do this? Is it those that don't do this? Are those the true people of God? Are, is it those who wear the big hats? Are those the people of God? Are the people of God the ones that speak in tongues? I'll modernize it. Are the people of God the ones that speak in tongues? Well, what about the people that don't speak in tongues? Well, they're not the people of God. On what basis do you say that? Well, pastor of a pastor of a pastor said that. Well, I think Jesus would have conflict with what you just said. Well, who are God's people? Oh, those that wait, raise up in the morning and go to prayer meetings five times out of the week because true God's people... God's true people are the ones that are hardcore, always out evangelizing, always out going to the farmer's market, finding a soapbox, standing up and preaching. Those are God's true people. What if you can't do that because you've got a broken leg? Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe God won't like you that week. So what happens is you have all these rules and regulations leveled upon people that literally bring about a crushing weight of oppression rather than liberation and freedom for some of you. That's been your religious experience. You've gone to churches. You've sensed that. You've felt that. you lived under that. You've never felt as if you can live up to the standards that are there. But what you need to understand is what those standards are oftentimes that are there are standards that have been given and are man-made rules that have brought about a crushing. Now, let me say this real quick about tradition. Because Jesus is not saying all tradition is wicked and all tradition is evil. Something happened back in the 70s, the church in America, Jesus movement, and a lot of people were getting saved, and there was this whole new wave, this whole new movement of God, and sort of this idea, and a lot of ways, what kind of was birthed out of that was a very anti-traditional mentality, and you had a lot of people that were like, you know, um, God doesn't care whether or not you wear suits to church, doesn't really care, so we're going to wear blue jeans to church, and that's, that's fine, like, that's true, God doesn't care. He really doesn't care what you have on, what you're wearing to church. Uh, but the reality is he does care about your heart. And so what had happened was sort of this anti-traditionalism that came up. But the problem is, is that tradition's not bad. It's the level to which we amount tradition, or if we look at tradition as being what defines you as a person that God accepts is the problem. So here's the point. We have our own little forms of tradition that we would say, if you do these things, then God will accept you. God will approve of you. You will be part of God's people part of God's people group. And what Jesus is saying is, no, that's not what identifies God's people. That's not what saves you. That's not what separates you as being God's people. What you do, what you don't do, based upon these certain rules, rule, uh, rules and regulations. There's another thing that approves you. There's another way that accepts you, and it's not through what you do or don't do. 
Religious people love to do that because it's easy to simply reduce Christianity down to a list of 10 do's and don'ts or 100 do's and don'ts or your little manual or your little book of distinctives. It's very easy to do that, to say, this is us. Read the book. When you're done, let's talk about it because you need to live according to these things. If you're going to be part of our group, part of our church, part of our family, you have to live according to this specific rule book. And if you fail, that's cool because we'll blog about you, we'll gossip about you, we'll shun you, we'll make you feel really bad and guilty. And that happens. And what Jesus is really trying to say is that it's not what you do for God that approves you and gives you an identity. It's what's been done for you that gives you an identity and brings about your approval. Let me give an example of what Jesus is going to go on to say now and brings it home very clearly, very pointedly. Basically is this. He wants these people to understand that finding identity, one's identity and approval in religious or these secular traditions, what will ultimately end up happening are these four things. One, these people in verse 8 says that they have actually left the commandment of God. So these religious leaders, in seeking to superimpose their laws of cleanliness and washing over Jesus' people, he basically, in essence, says, you guys have left the commandment of God, and you've elevated your commandment. Um, in other places, that particular word, left, literally is translated as forgive. It's the idea of you separated yourself from, you pulled away from God's very commandment. So the irony is this. They claim to be adhering to God's word. But Jesus, ironically, is saying, you're actually divorcing yourself from God's word because you're superimposing your little rules, traditions upon God and upon these people. The second thing tells us in verse 9 that you're actually rejecting the commandment. So you're actually, in your heart, making a conscientious decision to reject, to turn away from the commandment of God. The third thing, he says, going on down, he says, you're making void the word of God in verse 13. He says, you're making void the word of God by your tradition. And what Jesus does is he quotes a verse from the Old Testament out of the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah has this statement that he says to the people of Israel. And he basically refers to this and he says, you guys are hypocrites because what you're doing is you're elevating the traditions of men over the very commandment of God. And so Jesus uses the phrase, he says, you guys actually are hypocrites. The Greek word is hypocritus. And it's the word hupo means under. Krisos uh, or kritos is the idea of judgment. Krisos is the idea of being a judge or having judgment. It's the idea of something that is judged or rightly judged, but you're hiding it behind something, under something. And we get the actual word hypocrite, and it comes from the ancient Greek uh, stage where people would go out and they would act and they would hide behind a mask. They would have a mask up there, and so whatever their part was, was depending upon whatever mask that they're holding. So what Jesus is saying is that the truth of who you really are is veiled, is hidden behind your little mask that you hold up. And when people superimpose God's word or superimpose their traditions over God and they superimpose these ideas or cultural concepts or ideologies over their relationships with other people and they begin to choose or determine or isolate themselves from other people based upon these cultural standards or religious standards, you're being a hypocrite. Let me tell you how this works, I think, maybe in our church. We have a lot of young people. Like I said, majority of our church is between 18 to 35. And there are some people that are over 35 and 40 and 42 and 41 right now. Going to be 42 soon. And 
And the reality is, is that there's a tendency, and I hear it, of people to kind of be like, oh, there's all these young people, and there's nothing here for me, and so therefore, I don't want to associate with younger people because they don't know anything about life the way I know things about life, and, you know, I have so much more information about life, and these people don't know anything, they're responsible, and yada, yada, yada. I hear it all. So what you're actually saying, let me put it in different words, is you're saying the basis by which I will accept someone younger than me is if they have the amount of life, skill, life ability, and way to relate with me. But I will not accept them unless they're able to relate with me on a social level. You are a hypocrite. Younger people, you're like, I don't want to have older people. Hang around. They're older. They're disconnected. They're detached. They don't know what I'm talking about. They don't know what life's all about. They're not fun. So you are actually saying the criteria by which you will accept them is if they're going to be fun, they know how to drink light beer, they know how to do crazy things like you do, and that will be the basis by which you will accept them. You're being hypocritical. You don't understand the gospel. You don't understand what Jesus has done for you. Jesus has accepted you for who you are as a sinner. And yet you go and you superimpose extra rules over other people? Some of the traditionalists are like, I don't like young people because they worship weird and I'm more into hymns and organs and stuff like that. And that's fine. But then you look at other, other, other people that worship in a different way, and you're like, I can't relate to that. I don't like that. And it's fine to have a preference. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a preference that's totally legit, totally fine. But if you look at that and say, I reject other people because they have a guitar, because they have a bass player, because the guy has a faux hawk, I reject them. But the same goes for the young guys that are like, you know, all hip and cool and look great, hair's perfect. And they look at the older guy singing a hymn, Really, really long eyebrows, and they're like, I just not into that guy. He's not a trim his eyebrows, nose hairs, and I reject him. You, in essence, are basically saying the criteria by which I will accept people is if they look like me. You don't understand the gospel. You're being hypocritical. You're superimposing some form of tradition, traditionalism, over. It doesn't matter if you're the young hip person doing that and you got tats and you're judging everybody else who is straight and normal and cool and not cool, or if you're young, vice versa. It doesn't matter. We have this propensity to do this. And what Jesus is basically saying, you're being hypocritical. Because what you're doing is you're determining whether or not someone will be accepted or non-accepted based upon how they act, based upon cultural traditions, religious or secular traditions. And he's saying it's wrong. And at the end of the day, here's what ended up happening. All of these people, they miss out on the life that God seeks to give. It's amazing to me how to see this happen. For example, in the church, people that are very religious, they miss out on the life that God wants to bring them into because in their mind, all they're simply looking at is, I saw a dude out front chain smoking. He can't be a Christian. I can't see Jesus in this church because the dude is chain smoking. Well, you know what? What you need to see is just a month ago, he wasn't smoking a cigarette. He was smoking weed, and Jesus is saving him. So smoking a cigarette is an upgrade. That's really good. Like, like you should rejoice in that. Jesus is changing him. He's transforming him. He's working in their life. Some of you be like, I can't go to this church because women dress really skimply in the summer. You know what? You should have seen the fact that they actually have clothes on. That's better than what it was three months ago. He's saving them. 
they're growing, they're maturing, they're learning what it means to walk in righteousness, to actually wear clothes, to do things that are, are righteous and holy, that are in line and in sync with the heart of God. But if all you can see is through this lens that says, here's how the way things should be, here's the way I want to see them, because I created my own Jesus, now you become the judge, you separate, you isolate, you say and call the shots as to who you will accept in, and what you fail to see is Jesus has accepted you as a sinner, as a heretic, and as a wicked soul. He saves you. He accepted you. So the question that Mark really, I think, wants us to press deeper into is how does Jesus do this? Because up until this point, what we see is Jesus healing, saving, rescuing, feeding, delivering a bunch of people that are irreligious, demon-possessed, lost, marginalized people, all right? And on what basis is Jesus rescuing them? Let's take, for example, the demoniac. Did Jesus rescue the demoniac because he was a good, faithful, God-centered Jew? No. He was demon-possessed. I mean, like, that's as worse as it gets. That's like saying he was in a fraternity. He was really messed up. <laughs> really, really messed up. That's what it was going on here. That Jesus rescued him. He was the son of the devil. All right? That's equivalent to what it's trying to purport, is that Jesus rescued even him. On what basis? Because he washed his hands before he ate? Because he didn't do this? Because he didn't do this? Because he didn't do this? No. By sheer grace. So Mark wants us to press further. Why and how can Jesus do that? Well, Mark takes the rest of the storyline to the end of the Bible, to the end of his story, and he tells us how he can do that. Because Jesus, the only one who is truly acceptable and accepted by God and approved by God on the cross, would be unaccepted, would be disproved, would be rejected. The only one who truly offered his life rightly to God, the only one who was truly worthy of any honor, worship, value, and praise, in the eyes of God, he was rejected. The only one that was ever worthy of being accepted was rejected, so that we, who live all of our days worthy of non-acceptance, can be accepted. To the degree that you see that that's what Jesus did for you, that will change you. That will change the way that you act, change the way that you think, change the way that you live, change the way that you give. You will begin to see your life literally as one that's been transformed by what God has done for you. And what you'll begin to realize is that at the end of the day, what we see is that Jesus ultimately, when he rose again from the dead, for example, he's on the road to Emmaus. And he wants us to understand that when he's with these disciples, he's talking to them about, you know, this, you know, if you guys read the scripture, you, you would have known that the Son of Man would have came and suffered and died and rose again. But basically what Jesus is saying to these disciples, he's like, you guys, the problem is, is that you didn't read your Bibles rightly. You thought you read your Bibles correctly, but you didn't read your Bibles correctly. Because in reality, if you read the Bible correctly, what you would have seen is that the Bible has a plot line. The Bible has a center point. The Bible has a trajectory. The Bible has a goal, an aim, an aim, and the goal, and the center point, the trajectory of the entire storyline, the plot line of the entire Bible is me. That's what Jesus was saying. 
that if you saw the Bible, if you understood the Bible correctly, you would see that it would have ultimately led to me. And by leading to me, you would have been set free. See, here's what happens. Religious people come along and say, the Bible is going to be used for myself, for my power, to establish my own power. And so what happens when people challenge and question pet doctrines, people get freaked out. But when they see that the Bible is actually about Jesus, it leads us to safety. It leads us to life. Here's what oftentimes ends up happening. I'll wrap up with this. So for example, the Old Testament. We oftentimes think the Bible is about how to just moralistically live better. Take, for example, the Old Testament. You can take a lot of stories in the Old Testament. And what ends up happening is you take stories in the Old Testament and you moralize them. So you take, for example, the story of the life of a guy named Joseph. Joseph, here's a guy. He's, uh, he's, he's lost everything. He's at some point getting it all back. He's in a place of high honor and respect and power. He's sold into slavery. He's betrayed. And ultimately, at some point, he's confronted by his brothers and ultimately forgives his brothers. And so what we typically do is we take that story, we're like, isn't that amazing? He had everything, and he forgave, and so go and be like Joseph. So go and be like Joseph. What a great guy. What a great moralistic figure to follow. Go and be like Joseph. So we hear that story, and we're like, oh, my gosh. Like, like that means I got to be like Joseph and forgive everybody. You know what's happening right now? You're being crushed. The story of Joseph and its morality is crushing you. But if you see the story of Joseph, that's actually probably not about you anyhow, but about a greater Joseph who was sold into slavery, who was betrayed, and who did forgive. If you see the story of Joseph as a trajectory, a story that points to Jesus, and he did that for you, that releases your heart. I'll take one more because it's fun. The story of Esther. Here's the story of Esther sometimes. Like, it's a great story. It's a story of a lady who had a lot of means, a lot of money, a lot of resource, a lot of power, a lot of ability. She, here she is. She's uh, got all the status, this wealth. And what happens is that she is in a position where she can make a choice. And if she makes the right choice, then she loses the, uh, she has this potential of risking and losing everything, losing everything, all of her power, status, ability, wealth, everything. But she'll save a nation. So we finish the story, oftentimes we're like, oh, isn't Esther amazing? Go like, be like Esther. Don't you want to be like Esther, ladies? All the women are like, yes, I want to be like Esther. And like, good, go be like Esther. And you go home, you walk home, and go walk away, and you're like, I can't do this. Like, I can't be like <laughs> Esther. What's happening is you're being crushed by Esther, the story of Esther. But if you see the story of Esther, the story of Esther is about not so much about you being like Esther, but about one who was greater than Esther, who had infinite wealth, infinite power, infinite strength, and it wasn't at risk of losing everything, but he did actually lose everything to save us, to save you. That changes you. He was crushed so that we who are crushed can be set free. He was despised so we who live our lives crushed underneath the weight of religious traditions and traditionalism and even the Bible at times when it gets misused so that we can be set free. He's our deliverer in every way. And the degree to which you see Jesus as a deliverer sent to be crushed so that you who are crushed can be set free, you will be free. You will be free to love. You will be free to look at Esther and say, I want to be like that want to give away everything. 
I'm going to live in a way that I can let go of everything because you're not bound by it anymore. You're free to love because you see the better David. You see the greater lamb that was slain. You see all these greater pictures of Jesus in the storyline of the Old Testament and the whole Bible that point to his authority, that point to a new people given a new identity under his name. The Bible points to Jesus. I pray today that you would see Jesus, that you would run to him, and that you would be set free. I'm going to pray. I'm going to finish. I'm going to have the worship team come on up, and we're going to respond. We'll respond by singing. We'll respond by partaking of communion. And I want to ask right now, if you're here and you feel oppressed, crushed, destroyed, ruined, whether by religion, whether by this world that's just here, and you need someone to pray for you, right now, I just want to ask you to stand. Whoever you are, you feel oppressed, feel crushed, feel bruised, feel fragile. I just want to pray for you. Just stand right where you're at. Why don't we turn off the lights? This is not about you. This is about you trusting Jesus. This is our family. We're family of people. We love you. We're here for you. We're here to pray over you, pray with you, pray for you. We're here to be family alongside you. Jesus is here to set people free. If you're crushed, oppressed, underneath the weight of sickness, illness, disease, or at least under the fear of sickness, illness, and disease, I want you to stand. I want to pray for you. Jesus heals. He might heal you today. I want to pray for you. Just stand up right where you're at. Anybody else, just stand up right now. just want to pray for you. Between you and Jesus, whether you're a Christian and you feel oppressed, I want you to stand. If you're not a Christian and you want Jesus to wash you and cleanse you, transform you, just stand. Anybody else, just stand right where you are. We're just going to pray for you. Nothing weird. We're not going to call you out. some of you that are sitting around, these people that are standing, if you guys wouldn't mind just, just reaching out, laying a hand on them right now, and uh, just praying over them. Just pray for them right now. Pray specifically. And maybe afterwards, what you can do after worship, um, you can maybe get their name and number if you'd like, and just continue praying for them. If anything, just to say you're just going to continue to pray for them. Just pray for them right now. Pray out loud for them right now. And I'll give you a second, and I'll just pray over all of us, and we'll sing and worship, partake communion. We partake communion as a, as a family. If you're not a Christian, and you've not been washed by Jesus, I, I would actually encourage you to not partake of the communion. Communion is actually, it, it's a celebration of a meal that Jesus invites with his followers. If you're not one of his followers, I actually invite you to become one of his followers. But if you're not one of his followers, probably best for you to partake a meal that, that's exclusively for one of his people. And really, the prerequisite is not money, it's not how devoted you are, how much you pray. The prerequisite is that you recognize you're bankrupt. You cry out to him, you call upon him to save you and rescue you, and he will. Yeah, right now, I just want to pray for these that have stood. Just ask God that you would meet them right where they're at. It's physical. There's a physical oppression, a weight that's on their shoulders. Jesus, we ask that you heal. Thank you that you are a healer. You heal us. You heal us of diseases. You do that. You're a powerful God. We ask, God, for those that are sick, that you would heal them. For those that are oppressed in their soul and their heart, God, set them free. For those that have been crushed by religious oppression, set them free. God, set us free as we sing, as we worship you. We thank you, Jesus.